Welcome to Humanity Wired, a podcast that explores the human rights impacts of technology today and tomorrow. I am your host, Amy Lair. I'm the director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. On this podcast, I speak with software engineers, computer scientists, human rights defenders, and policymakers who share the same goal of making technology work for humanity, not against us. With us today is Hadia Masih, who joined an Islamist group when she was at university. After a decade, she severed those ties and spent the past 20 years combating radicalization, both on and offline. She recently created a new organization called the Groundswell Project. It supports grassroots organizations that bring together different communities of faith to combat hate and radicalization through better understanding. The organization then amplifies those efforts online to reach a much broader audience. Hadia, thank you so much for joining me today. We're here to really talk about, I mean, first of all, your background, which I think is fascinating, and obviously you have lots of lessons learned from that, and then also some of the work you're doing today. So from what I understand, when you were quite young, when you were 18, you actually joined an Islamist group and, and we'll remember for about a decade. And so I'm just curious, you, know, you were growing up, as I understand it, in the United Kingdom, university educated. Why did you join? Well, I think that's obviously a question that lots of people ask me. And each time, you know, I, I just say, if you imagine going to university, you are at that age where you're thinking and you're trying to discover yourself. Various issues are, you know, problematic and you want solutions. Every student is at that stage, and I was no different. So I was just looking for answers. There were certain things that were going on around the world that were affecting me, upsetting me, and I wanted to find a way of solving them. So when you know you have a group of people who say, "Yes, this is the answer. We've got a solution for you," you'll jump at that, you know, at that opportunity to listen. It was a way of making sense of the world. Yeah, for sure, to make sense of the world and and trying to find different solutions and, and trying to understand different perspectives. And the ones that fitted my belief at the time was happened to be in an extremist group. They were a non-violent political Islamist group, but they had quite extreme views for sure. Interesting. And, and how are you recruited? How did that how did that work at the time? Which What year, what year would this have been in? Uh, Mid-90s. Okay, yeah. So before the internet was what it is today. So so was that <laughs> done in person at the time then? I think they were looking to recruit kind of young people passionate about issues. I ticked that box for them. And they could see that I was someone who was quite an activist. And when a group wants to recruit someone, they recruit activists because they're the ones that will help the cause, their cause. Because I was quite curious and showing a lot of interest, they dedicate a lot of time with me and showed me ideas of like, you know, what's going on in the world. This is what's happening. Western powers and Western hegemony is taken over. There are going to be people that are trying to destroy your faith. And are you just going to watch and let that happen? Or are you going to do something about it? And I'm like, of course, I want to do something about it. Or what are you going to do about it? And I was like, well, I'm not sure. I said, well, we have a solution. We have the answer. We can create an Islamic state, which would be this utopia, you know, place to, to live. People will have their needs met. And, you know, it would be the picture that was painted would 
very much depict like the, the Islamic golden era, the golden age, and it didn't seem that far-fetched at the time. Um, yeah. And after about a decade, you left this group. As I understand it, from what you said in other interviews, it was really after some bombings killed about 52 people in London back in 2005. So you left the group at that point. It's my understanding that for much of the time since then, you've really been trying to tackle the problem of radicalization. Obviously, as someone who is yourself a Muslim and maybe understands more how that works than, let's say, I might here in Washington, D.C. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about how you've seen the way that people are radicalized change, if it has. Right? What has been the impact of the internet becoming a much more influential place to exchange ideas, the rise of social media platforms? How has that affected how this occurs? Well, you know, at the end of the day, the actual gist of the argument stays the same. It's just they've managed to cleverly use the internet and technology to just make that message go further. Um, you know, so they definitely are very um, imaginative in the way that they address people. It has obviously changed. Like before, we would meet people face to face in various places. You know, it would be like university campus. We'd meet people and we'd actively go out on the ground to meet people. That doesn't need to happen anymore. You can do that on, you know, from behind your screen. Right. And has that really enabled an enormous scaling up of, of those efforts? Absolutely, yeah. It would like be a laborious task before we'd go and meet people in various places, like potentially mosques and in different places. You know, it'd be time consuming. So definitely, for for sure, it's easier when you're when you can attract like hundreds and hundreds of people at the touch of a button. Has the profile of people who are being recruited changed because of the change in medium, right? Like you were this young, I imagine, quite charismatic activist on campus, and now people are, you know, it's whoever happens to be online, I imagine. So does that change who's getting recruited and the kind of messaging that's being used? Yes. From doing this for quite some time, I kind of categorize the type of people that are kind of targeted. So there'd be people who are converts to Islam, who don't know very much about religion, and trying to find friendship. And then you'd have people who were quite young and vulnerable. Um, you'd have, um, so the youngest person was like, when I'm saying young and vulnerable, like 11 years old. Yeah. And there'd be people who are, the profile I guess that fitted me was like an activist, people who are concerned about the world and wanted to make a change, like at, you know, university age. And then there were people who had certain mental health problems or just, you know, maybe have autism or learning difficulties. And then, like, some potentially, like, as well, some young people who are just angry with the world, maybe in in care or foster care, you know, like, they don't have anyone. So those are types of categories that I found I was talking to when I was doing de-radicalization. You know, they, these are young people that probably just are quite lonely if they're, on the, if they're online all the time. And that's where they find their friendships. But in today's climate, young people live in two different worlds. They definitely have an online life and they have an offline one, which is, it seems a bit dull. I think before, you know, it's just like this, this memory of like before people ride bikes and climb trees and be active. And they seems to be a more inactive younger generation 
who seem quite you know obsessed with the technology and the phone you know those people who don't have that balance who spend most of the time on on their phone are targets yeah yeah so in a way the fact that they're using so much technology is an indicator of their vulnerability to radicalization exactly so you have like you know maybe people who are bullied at school or people who don't have many friends um, and just find you know solace to be online and, and meet a community that's online some of the profiles of the people I would work with their lives are quite mundane like there was one person who just worked in a supermarket and you know six o'clock in the morning she'd go up get up and bake bread um in the supermarket she is a white convert and I could see like this exciting life that she was trying to you know grab grab a hold of and and how different how like the contrast of the online excitement and her everyday life was quite huge that's really interesting yeah so maybe people who in a way are looking for meaning um even if it's not the kind of meaning we wish they were looking for the opportunity is there online to be somebody different yeah it's yeah. really interesting. And is most of this radicalization online occurring on sort of normal public websites or is this like on the dark web or like where does this happen? Well, in the early days when I was working in 2014 when there was a big there was a big phenomenon of young girls leaving to join Daesh, um, it was pretty much Twitter, Facebook, um, and they they used that like nobody's business. They were using that as a as a mechanism to recruit people for sure and then it kind of went a little bit onto instagram and they'd use any type of technology there was nothing that they wouldn't try out which was really interesting because you wouldn't think you know they'd use pinterest they'd use google plus any type of technology that was available they'd use it and then when all the accounts started to get closed down and you know I think the technology and the social media companies were starting to cotton on that this was something really dangerous. And they eventually started closing things down. Um, then it started to, I saw um, a move to go onto the dark web. So now, yeah, it's not it's not on the surface. They've, they've evolved or they've changed their tactics, let's say, and have gone more onto the dark web. So what does that mean? I mean, I feel like right now there's, and for a number of years, there's been a big push for social media platforms to really have terms of service and teams that focus on, um, you know, online extremism and recruitment and so forth. Um, and, and obviously, it sounds like that's had an impact. Um, but from a, govern, a government perspective, right, I think the UK just put out a big white paper that was partly about, you know, children online, but also about uh, countering violent extremism online. So is that the right focus? Should it be on the social media platforms or does it need to be more on these like darker corners of the internet? At the moment, it's the darker corners of the internet are, are definitely being used. That's for sure. Um, but we still do need to keep an eye on how they are using various platforms. Like I know other far right groups that I work very closely with, they are using Facebook and all the kind of secret chat rooms and whatever that they've got. Um, what's it, they, what they call like, you know, this secret groups, they're being used. So they're still there. Daesh are not so much on those platforms, but a lot of their supporters are now um, using people from Malaysia, Indonesia, and, and various other countries where it's difficult to 
understand the language that is being used. So, so you have to have someone specialised in Malaysian or Indonesian or whatever, um, Far Eastern languages to see what, what the, what's being said. So I've seen a trend in those types of languages where they're still quite prominently on Facebook. That's really interesting. So it really requires that kind of localized knowledge in a way and that language yeah. skill. Yeah. English language for recruitment isn't particularly apparent there anymore, but definitely other languages are. In terms of, again, like certainly in the US and I think the UK and Europe, right, there's definitely a focus on this and a lot of pressure on, let's say, Facebook and YouTube and all these different platforms to, to be addressing this yeah. problem. I mean, where do you see... Where could those platforms make the biggest difference still? Well, I can definitely see a place for um, a lot more help. As, uh, the the organization that I'm working, well, trying to set up now, Groundswell Project, is all about making a level playing field now. Like, we know how extremist groups operate. We know what they do. Well, I definitely do. <laughs> and I, I'm just saying that it's just through experience now. I, I, I can see how they're operating where are we on that same level? Are we present? No, we're not. How are we a match for these groups? So my perception in the U.S. is that a lot of our approaches, at least in person, on radicalization have been about sort of policing a bit, right? Policing communities. My sense is that you're suggesting a different approach in terms of maybe trying to sort of win hearts and minds um, in a meaningful way. Is that right? Yeah. So as well as like working on de-radicalization programs, my main thing is to work in community and grassroots because inevitably there, that's where the change will happen and that's where we'll see an effective difference. So grassroots organizations, no matter how big or small, are promoting positive narratives which counter those of the divisive ones. An example is like an organization bringing people together from diverse backgrounds to promote cohesion, to promote understanding, to promote dialogue is a direct threat to any extremist group because they're saying that we're divided. They're saying that community hates you. But that group who's promoting cohesion is like, no, they don't. We're all united and we're trying to learn about each other. It's a counter narrative for those groups. And they really don't like that. They don't like communities coming together. And recently, just in the UK, we see, I wrote a, a blog on it, actually, of how extremist groups don't like people hanging out with their neighbors. And <laughs> I'm not just saying that. They've actually come out and tried to disrupt an event called Love Thy Neighbor. because They're so offended by it. What was the event? Yeah, the event was called Love Thy Neighbor. It was an exhibition that was going to be held in... Shia Muslim Centre in a predominantly Jewish area in North London. So um, it was an exhibition on how Albanian Muslims helped Jews during the Holocaust. So it was like a, a cohesion exhibition. The communities came together. They were really excited about, you know, the event and how it was going to be hosted in, in the Shia Centre and people would come together because I think there was a bit of like um, suspicion maybe or you know there was uh, no understanding of, of their new neighbours so it was a way to bring people together what happened was extremist groups were like you can't have this exhibition it's it's promoting you know it's the Israeli agenda and you know they just completely turned it into something that it wasn't and then um, hardline Jewish organisations are saying 
that it was all about um, Holocaust revisionism and they can't have this exhibition. So they came, they came out of the woodwork because they were so offended by this event. Wow, that's uh, really amazing given it sounds like an effort to have a really constructive conversation. And how, how were you, was it, was even able to go forward or was it really totally derailed by these efforts? Obviously, they made threats. They were like, we're going to um, come and demonstrate. And they were saying that they would disrupt it. So the community got a little bit scared. But um, we kind of like stuck, stuck together and said, you know what, we're just going to go ahead with this. And we did actually change location. And we tried to keep it secret <laughs> till the last minute. Um, and it was a bit, it's really strange. There's like this cat and mouse type of thing going on with the community and extremists. <laughs> we were desperate to, you know, not let them win. And so like the event, it went ahead in a secret location, which was then, it was revealed like uh, through Eventbrite later on. And we tried to vet the people who were coming, making sure, because, you know, we tried to make sure there was security, etc. So... But the, the, the community were just really adamant that they could go ahead and that they wouldn't be, you know, bullied into cancelling the event. And so it went ahead. It was extremely positive. There were so many people that came came to the actual event. There were a mix of Muslims and Jewish people, Sikhs, people from all over, you know, different backgrounds that are trying to champion this event because they knew that extremists were trying to, you know, get their way. Another thing that was great that happened was a Pakistani um, news channel, which is very popular, came to film it and translate it in, in Urdu, and then it went to Pakistan. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah, it went live there. So it's like, wow, you know, this is a tiny event that you just thought would be a harmless thing to bring people together. It has huge impact, um, and, and there's a feeling that more of it is needed and more of it is necessary, but... It doesn't happen on its own. We need people. We need support and training for other people to do these types of events. And and that's what I've been dedicating my time and, and my efforts on is like knitting communities together. I mean, it, they will not knit themselves, even though they want to. Right. It needs that kind of catalyst. And so how I mean, there's sort of what you're doing. at It sounds like a very grassroots level, right, which is often quite slow. Um, but important. And so are there ways that you're trying to also then take those learnings and, you know, get to a broader community or sort of amplify the work you're doing so that it has a broader impact? And, and are you doing that offline or online? Well, this is where the issue is. It needs to be a marriage of the both. You can't, you know, grassroots organizations are doing their thing. They're just, you know, doing what they do all the time. And it's not being heard. Whereas extremist groups do very little, but have a wider reach. They do a, you know, a lot with a little. Whereas we've got a lot, but we don't have, we're not organized or no one's really strategically brought, brought those voices of, of reason and, you know, counter narratives together. So we, that's where I'm working with various tech organizations to ask for that type of support and say, we need Facebook credits for XY event that's going on. There's an interfaith bike ride going on in South London. That needs to be popularized. That needs to be pushed out. You know, we need, you know, social media help to push out the positive activities. So we've got the content already. We don't even have to make that up. It's not fake news. It's real. We need technology and, and, and these companies to help promote that. I mean, 
it makes no sense to me how fake news and you know fake content and extremist groups can have so much reach on social media when they don't even own social media. Surely the people who own it can help promote the positive voices. It's, it's interesting when you think about some of the recent criticisms of the algorithms used to prioritize uh, different content, right? And that because of the need to get people kind of you know, online and staying online and staying on these on platforms, right? It sort of pushes them towards more radical um, content versus maybe the wholesome content we would like them to be looking at. So it sounds like you're trying to just reverse that trend in a way by by eliciting help from these organizations, from these companies. Is that right? Exactly. And, you know, like grassroots organizations, as I said, they just do their thing. They just do what they're always doing. They, they don't think, oh, how can we then put this on social media and get it? you know, further and a wider reach. They don't have, like, that type of agenda. But from from what I'm seeing, I'm like, no, you need to amplify that type of message because it's the kryptonite for these organizations, the extreme organizations. So if that is the weakness, it, we need more of it. Right. And so is the idea that, let's say you'd push out, I don't know, this this information about this interfaith bike ride, for example, and it would reach more people in that community? Or is it that it would actually reach a much broader community where it's not that they're going to show up to the bike ride, it's going to be more that they know that it's happening. And that's a sign that a particular narrative is not true. Yeah, it does both. So on my platform, there's um, the ability to map your event that you've got on that's going to be around community um, cohesion and bridge building. You can map that event. And then you can map your charity as well. So you can like look at what's going on in your area if you want to get involved, if you want to challenge extremist views or whatever. You know, it, there's there's now a facility and, and the ability to do that. So it's still like in work in progress, but the idea is that this should grow and it will be, you know, one place where you can see everything positive that's happening. You can become involved. Activists can, you know, share content. They can share ideas. I've used it with young people who I'm trying to mentor at the moment and I'm showing them like, did you know this was going on? Like, um, you know, during Ramadan, for example, a synagogue opened their their place of worship to, to host an iftar. A church opened their, you know, their premises to host an, an iftar in their church. You know, like there's there's all these positive stories that I can then show those young people who are questioning things like, oh, everyone hates us. Well, actually, they don't. There's loads of good things that are happening. I've seen people, young people, change their minds from seeing this because they've never seen it before. Right. So it's really just helping people basically see new trends and new events that they would never have been driven to, right, through traditional algorithms or through their existing networks, it sounds like. Yeah. This is like a, yeah, this is something that I show up like, you know, oh, Islamophobia is on the rise and, you know, everyone hates Islam. But well, actually, why would the synagogue open its doors to host an iftar if that was the case? They need to be questioned or a a different alternative and narrative has to be there. And and it has worked because it kind of turns it on its head and it, it shakes that foundation. Right. And you're trying to address partly the scalability problem. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. There's a lot that happens here in the Washington area too, I think, between different faith communities, but it is all very grassroots and you have to be plugged into those communities to know about it. Exactly. Yeah. I think, And that was what was frustrating. I was like, how come we didn't know about this? And, you know, that's such a shame that it just went ahead and no one knew about it. Yeah, exactly. So this sounds like a really interesting new organization that sounds like it'll fill an important gap 
What geographies are you covering? Is this sort of is this a UK-based organization so far, or is it something that others in other countries can tap into? At the moment, we're trying to pilot in the UK, and it's worked really well. It's working really well. I've got connections around in the UK, around Europe, Austria, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, Denmark. I have people in Nairobi as well. So these are my like kind of activist team that I've brought together around the globe. <laughs> and I just I always say that I'm not a think tank. I don't want to be a think tank. I'm a do tank. Yeah. <laughs> <just> do things. <laughs> and if if a process and a methodology is working and tried and tested according to the groundswell um methodology and, and, and I've categorized it like this. I like we find, connect and amplify. So we find the grassroots organizations that are, uh, are promoting cohesion and challenging hate. We connect them together so they can um, network and enhance their message. And then we amplify through technology or even local newspapers, um, any kind of news channel in the local area, for example, it will, it, everyone in that area should know that that interfaith bike ride was happening. Like it's common knowledge. We make these positive activities common knowledge within local areas, and I can think that I think that would work as a as a methodology, like in any area where there there's a need for community building and cohesion. Right, which is most parts of the world, and maybe in a sense more than ever because we spend so much of our time now online um, and not actually engaging with each other. Yeah. So there'll be see like people do want to go and do things that are happening around the corner. They're more likely. So it's it's like a hyper localized kind of method of working because I think that would be the, that's the most effective. Um, but then helping amplify yeah. it, yeah. The amplification I think is what's often really lacking. Yeah, and that's that's what we and I said like it is, it is a matter of social media and you know my council ha- are made up of academics. Um, media, tech, business, activists. Um, so yeah, they, we've tried to get a mixed bag of all of the ingredients that's needed in order to push a solution forward because I don't see anyone else with any really great solution. I know I'm, I'm going to be biased and think this is a solution, but I, I, I genuinely see that this has worked and it, it's something that's new and needed. That's great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and also look forward to hearing about how this new project is going. And, you know, I really hope it is a success because I think feeling like we're part of communities is such an important part of what humans need to be happy and balanced. And uh, so I think this has something to offer not only communities that feel marginalized, but sort of people as a whole. Yeah, I think it's just, it's just healthy to have that in, in any community all the time. I think when you do neglect it and abandon it, people assume that everyone's going to get together, but actually it doesn't happen like that. You have to actually have the bridge builders like physically there orchestrating and architecting that type of relationship. But once it's there, it's really easy. Everyone follows. They just needed that person to make the first move. It's really interesting. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. No worries. Thanks so much for listening. To learn more about the intersection of technology and human rights, visit the Human Rights Initiative webpage at csis.org. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to help other people find us too.